we are still going through our series on the book of Exodus. Very excited about the series. This is turning out to be one of my favorites um, for a few different key reasons. And we're going to find ourselves in chapter 32 today. So if you have a Bible, flip to chapter 32. And uh, if you were ever to take a stroll through our website, which I bet two of you probably have, right? It's not the most, I bet it's not bookmarked on anyone's browser. <laughs> what you'll find inside of the mission statement is a, a piece, a key, really, at the very end that talks about your growth. It's, it's implicit. Actually, it's explicit. Inside of our mission statement that we want to multiply disciples in all areas of life. Stay-at-home mom, retiree. Worker B, student, doesn't matter. We want to see people grow as disciples, which means also, by the way, to make disciples around us, which is a very different sermon. You'll know that you are growing as a disciple when you have disciples around you that are also growing. But discipleship does imply growth, and growth begins for you and me whenever we are able to look square in the face, shoulder to shoulder, looking straight at what has been a sin in our life, and say, this is a sin. This is against God. It is not small. It is not insignificant. And I'm done harboring it because Christ is better. I'm done coddling. I'm done giving safe retreat to this sin because more of God is better than more of this sin. And without this attitude towards sin, you can count on never growing. You simply can't grow. You can't grow as a disciple if you have made a lifestyle out of the alternative, which is maneuvering your sin, negotiating with your sin, collaborating with your sin, setting up a little guest room in your life to hold sin steady. If you do that, you just won't grow. In fact, I think the intensity and the commitment you have to put sin down in life, well, you could draw a line between that and your growth curve as a disciple. And what God is going to show us in our passage today is that he has a burning anger, a burning anger against sin, and yet a compassionate mercy towards sinners. And he can do that both at the same time, right? Which is good. It's good news for us today as a room full of sinners. In fact, there's this passage in Acts. Don't turn there. uh, Stay where you're at in Exodus. But in Acts, we have this moment where Stephen, who is the first martyr right before he is crushed to death with rocks and stoned, he actually takes people who should know better through a shotgun tour of the nation's history. And he says this in chapter 7, verse 39. Again, I'm going to say it. You don't have to turn there. He says, Our fathers refused to obey him, him being God, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who has led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That was a very big moment in that nation's history, big enough to where they're revisiting here in the book of Acts. Right? So we're going to go into that story a little bit as we go through chapter 32 And again, this is going to be a passage where we are going to see Christ much more clearly and compellingly as in all the passages that we find in the Old Testament. And this is what it says in chapter chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, just as Stephen said, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, 
We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. By the way, real quickly, pause right there. Where did all that gold come from that they used? I mean, they were broke as a joke whenever God found them, whenever God atoned them and redeemed them out of the land. They had nothing. They definitely didn't have gold. All of a sudden, they've got all this gold, enough to make a, a little statue, which is a sizable amount. The Bible actually tells us, you might actually remember it, when they were marching towards the Red Sea, God actually built a treasury for this brand new nation. Gave them, they, they didn't have an economy, they didn't have any money. And he just gifted it to them. In chapter 12, stay where you're at, verse 35, the Bible says that the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. It's interesting to me that they use God's thoughtful provision to craft a substitute idol to take his place. Did you catch that? Sounds crazy, but we get crazy, don't we? We do the same thing. We do the same thing. The most insidious idols that we have are actually made from the good things that God has given us. We can make an idol out of sex, which is a good gift that God has given us. Our kids, which are gifts to us. We could idolize kids. You see it every day. We could idolize the church. And this, by the way, is not the church. This is a church service that a church attends. But we can idolize it, whatever you want to call it. We can idolize this. We can idolize any part of the church. Food, money, gifts given to us. And we can make idols of them. Work, our body. I could go on and on. You get the picture, though, right? The most camouflaged idols that we have are the culturally appropriate ones the ones we have no problem applauding. Those will sneak by with very little detection from us. Right? When people idolize their kids, for an example, we perceive that as caring, highly invested, deeply loving. That's how those people see it. That's how we see it. That's why we applaud it. It could be an idol of the heart, though. Right? It could be. That heavy investment not, it's not always because we love them and want the best for them. It might be because we need them. We need them to accomplish things. We need them to complete us. Have you ever been to a little league game or a track meet or something where parents, not even just the dads, listen, I was a coach for a long time. It's not just the dads. Have you ever seen parents just come unglued because Junior didn't get to go in, because Junior didn't get to compete at some level? For that, that's a breakdown in the identity in the parent of the, of the parent. They, they need that person to compete. They need that child to achieve so that they feel like they, as a parent, have achieved something in raising that kid, right? See it on Instagram all the time, right? Mostly with moms. You can email me if you want later. I get it that dads do this. And listen, it's okay to take pictures of your kids. I think it's one of the greatest things you can do on Instagram. Of all the things I've seen on Instagram, I'm fine looking at your kids. 
first day of school, it is actually pretty cute, right? I think we should capture those moments. Take pictures of your kid. But if it destroys you that nobody likes those pictures, that's an idol. You've created some sort of an idol. And I would basically say you have two idols in that, not just your kid, but Instagram as well, right? Different subject. But you see what I'm saying. We applaud that, though. That's just a loving parent. That's just a highly invested parent. So we clap. Your spouse, the same thing, right? People that love their spouses, when they idolize their spouses, it just comes across as committed, but it can be just another idol. This is what I tell people right before they get married. When I do some premarital counseling, if you want to blow your marriage up, then you're going to want your spouse to love you more than God. But you want your spouse to love God more than you if you want your marriage to work. That's what you want. You want to be second in your marriage. Second place. Fastest way to kill your marriage is to be a small Jesus to your spouse or require them to be a small Jesus to you because they will never be able to deliver. You never want your spouse to have that power to utterly complete you in every dimension because they will also have the power to totally destroy you. That's what we call a God a lot of times, right? I mean, Jerry Maguire taught an entire nation to say to their significant other, you complete me. That was so sappy. Even when it was cool and everybody was saying it, you have to admit it was kind of sappy, right? You heard that and you thought, I don't know about that. You complete me. Is that what you want? Do you want to be number one to your spouse and your spouse to be number one to you? Because if they can complete you, they have the power to ruin you too. You've seen this when a spouse dies in a marriage, right? Sometimes that death kills two people. The widow or the widower that is left wishes with every fiber that they were dead as well. That death claimed more than just one person because a small Jesus also died on that day, not just a beloved spouse. But we applaud these things. We, we applaud them without asking some harder questions of what's going on. These are camouflaged idols a lot of time. But a culturally applauded idol is no less an idol to God. Anything that satisfies and completes our soul more than God is going to get the bulk of our worship. And we worship what we would call a God. I mean, think about what the pandemic has done. If it's done anything, it's refocused where some of our gods have been lurking and hiding and cloaked. Safety. Think about safety. Some of us will do anything in the world for safety. Anything. We'll stay up all night, spinning, tossing, turning, imagining scenarios, running different scenarios over how we could be safer. We'll overthink simple problems. That's what it looks like to worship safety. That's what the worship service looks like for the God of safety. Hoarding, strategizing. Some of us will do anything for power. Anything for power. Even the thought of being constrained or contained or being told you cannot do something. It's just anathema to us. So worshiping looks like mowing other people over, slandering people, bucking authority just because it's an authority. That's worshiping. It's feeding an idol. Some of us will do anything for comfort just to escape the pain, the grief, the work. We will do anything to distract us and bring laughter. So what does worship look like? It could look like food, media gluttony. It could look like anything, any substance that for a moment takes our glare away from what is hard in life. You get the picture. Whatever we feel like destroys us or completes us gets all of our attention. It gets what it wants, right? And idols change with the days, don't they? I mean, when we read this, we, I think we can all admit, even if you're in here and you don't love Jesus or you're watching and you're not even sure about Jesus, 
Cows can't deliver us, right? I mean, nobody read that with me just then. We read it twice in both Testaments. Nobody saw the word cow and thought, yeah, yeah, you know, that makes good sense. I mean, why not? We've got to build something. Might as well be a cow, right? Nobody thinks that. It doesn't make any sense at all. We look at it and we think, how ridiculous. Is it that much more ridiculous than a job? Or a social media account? I would say it's not any more ridiculous. You see, the rip current behind the heart of worshiping an idol is the same, and that will not change. The idol's voice is always the same in our ears, telling you and me, whether it's a person, a thing, a job, an account, retirement, whatever, and that's that your life in this ragged wilderness is hard and it's painful and it's full of struggle, but I can make it easier. As an idol, I can give you complete satisfaction in this world, which is a lie, or I could totally ruin you in this world if I'm not present, which is also a lie. But the idol says for you to have this, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you some things. What says that to you? What is it in your life that sits on your shoulder and tells you that you are one promotion away, one thing away, one moment away, more investment away from finally getting what you want in this world? And without it, life's not even worth living, right? I mean, if you lost it today, what would it be that wouldn't just hurt you or depress you, but would make you want to take your own life without it? Make you look at your life and say, well, why even bother? What is that? Or if you got that thing, whatever that thing is, you feel like for once you are totally and supremely satisfied in this crappy life in the wilderness. What is that? This thing that has the power to totally satisfy or ruin you. Because that's how we're supposed to read a passage like this. We carry that thing to this passage and see that God is about to handle idols violently with a burning hot rage. And it's not out of some insecurity over his own glory, but it's out of a love for you, a deep love for you. His anger burns hot. I mean, take this situation right here. Has he not already shown and exposed the gods of cattle that Egypt worshiped by leaving them rotting in the streets. If you were to hit rewind and go back to when we walked through the plagues, you will see that he didn't just make them disappear, right? They openly rot in the streets, all of it. And we looked at how the, the cattle was actually a, a deity that the Egyptians worshiped because it was a sign of prosperity and wealth and fruitfulness and life and vitality. That's why they worshiped it. And he said, oh yeah? You like that, huh? You like that? Well, look at this. I'm not just going to kill them. I'm going to let it be an open mockery by rotting in the streets. You have to step aside as the flies are swarming. That's what that's going to look like for you. And yet, what does their heart do? It returns to that, something that's broken. They went back to broken gods. And that sounds ridiculous to us when we read about it. But again, we also get ridiculous because we do the same thing. That's how we're supposed to read. I mean, when did money ever give you what it promised it was going to give you? When did that happen for you? I was talking to my bride the other day. The year we got married, I was a catch. I promise you this. The year we got married, I made $12,500. That's what it said on the tax forms. $12,500. That's how much campus ministers make when they don't know how to raise money very well, right? That's what I did. That's what I was raking in, you know, to support this family. And I always thought if I just made a little bit more money, we could eat some variety in our diet and she might be able to hit a sale at Payless, right? And get like two pairs of shoes instead of feeling guilty over one. If I just made this much more money, 
Listen, I make a lot more than that now. I do. I make more than $12,500 a year. Some of you don't like that. Don't email me. But you get what I'm saying, right? And still, there is this thing in me. There's this thing that says, if I just made a little bit more, then maybe this problem will go away. And that problem would go away. Maybe then. Is there ever going to be a time where money actually gives humanity what it promises? No, it's always going to say just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. And here's the thing. I'm no happier today than I was then, and I'm no safer today than I was then when I was making 12K a year. When did social media ever deliver on its vow to make you significant? When did that happen? No takers? As relationships, have they ever completed you? I mean, without the threat of destroying you at the same time? How about living through your kids? How's that working out for some of us that have kids? But even though our idols have shown to be powerless and mute like the dead cattle in the streets, we still return to them. Because what they do is they try to convince us that we were almost there, but we need to give a little bit more. That's what pornography says. That's what work says. That's what every idol in the land will say is that we have not given enough. And that's why some of us keep doubling down. One promotion away, one person away, one church away, one kid away, one post away. Almost there, not quite yet, one more time. So yeah, a cow is ridiculous, but not more ridiculous than Netflix or whatever our hobby hustle is or social. It's not, it's not more ridiculous than that, right? So here's what burning hot rage looks like. Look in 32 verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, just for a moment, let's just look at what God is saying here. He's saying, that's it, that did it. These people won't be led. That's it, they won't be led. Moses, why don't you scooch over about six feet. I'm gonna bake everybody and start over just with you. It's just your bloodline I need Jesus to come out of. It's all that I've started over from scratch before. We'll just hit reset on this thing because these folks aren't getting it done. I told them we made a vow. We had an agreement. They have a calf. I'm going to tase them all right now. Move over. And what does he do? You know that we hate this look on God. It looks like he's having a temper tantrum, doesn't it? Like he's that uncle right? It's always ranting on pot. He can't hold his liquor either. So he's always ripping things apart, starts swinging, tearing things down because he's not thinking it through. Always looks unreasonable, always looks unbalanced. That's how we read this passage. But let's just put the anger in context for a moment because there's nothing wrong with this reaction. It's highly appropriate what is happening right now. They had just tied the bow on this brand new covenant. They had just traded vows. And while still in this brief honeymoon stage of this brand new covenant that had been built, there's infidelity. I mean, come on. For those of you who are married or are not married, can you imagine infidelity on the honeymoon? I mean, it's brand new. It's a shrink wrap marriage. You just, you just, 
started this covenant. And it gets worse because they didn't just find another suitor on their honeymoon. They went back to that old flame that was abusive and lied, a broken one. That's what we have here. This would provoke a righteous anger. A promise was broken. A heart was broken. If the husband acted like there was no big deal upon some infidelity of this level, that's what would be inappropriate. That is what would be dysfunctional and weird. The appropriate emotion here is red, hot anger. This is exactly what we want. The the, the cheating of a covenant before the ink is dry with an old lying abuser is deserving of wrath. And let me tell you, you want a God that gets angry like this. You want an angry God like this. Don't ever walk up to the Bible and feel like you need to make excuses for a God with a red-hot anger. This is the way you want him, or the gospel's no good news at all. You don't want an emotionally lethargic God who has no gut response to sin, which is infidelity. You don't want a God who carries no wrath. Part of the gospel is that God hates sin, right? It's part of the gospel. He doesn't minimize it but he declares war on it, and he comes himself to end it all. And every time we sin, by the way, it's infidelity. Every time we sin, whether we're doing something we shouldn't be doing or not doing something that we should be doing or even imagining it, even if we don't do it, every time there's a sin in our life, we sin against God first. Even if we're sinning against somebody else or even sinning against ourselves, as Paul would say, it's still sin against God before it's in any other direction. Because sin is simply removing God and replacing him with something else. We relocate God from the center place, the throne, some people say, of our heart, and we cherish something in his place, even if it's only in our imagination. This is against God, just as much as a golden calf is. Your decision to slander somebody or hate them deeply in your heart, that's sinning against God first, before it's sinning against the other person. Your decision to imagine another version of your life with another spouse and another job and another place, that's a sin against God before it's a sin in other directions. And this is why repentance is the act of not just turning away from your sin, but returning God to the rightful place of your heart. It's both. It's both those things. Repentance is evicting sin, but it's giving the throne of your affections back to the Lord and saying, you alone deliver You alone satisfy. You complete me. That's what repentance is. So what happens after this? Let's look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord and his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offering as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is, let's pause. This is a cool moment, I think, where Moses is advocating for rebels here. Okay, I want to make a, a little bit of a theological dive, okay? We're going to pull some words out because what Moses is not doing is taking the perfect 
plan of God in editing it like you and I would a Google Doc. Coming in and saying, I'm, I'm not excited about this piece. What if we swapped it out for this idea? I got a great idea. What if we do this instead? That's not what's happening. God is sovereign, which means he is the supreme authority of all creation. And all things are under his wisely planned control. Everything. There is no defect in his authority. There is no defect in his plan. There's no version of history, in other words, where his plan is broken and needs you and me to come and help him figure it out, to edit it, or even to delete it. And that's how we read this sometimes. We read this as maybe Moses is bringing God to his senses. Like, whoa, 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 let's slow it, slow it down a little bit. Do you really want to do that? This isn't you. This isn't you. You're better than this. What will other people say? What will everyone say if you do this? This is, come on. Just remember who you are for a moment. That's not what's happening here. This moment is not ungodding God. It's inviting Moses to intercede. This is a provocation, an invitation for Moses to intercede. This is what a lot of scholars will call, or some scholars will call, a rhetorical demand, which isn't a phrase we throw around, but it's one if you're a parent, you've used it. Even if you don't know it, you've used rhetorical demand quite a bit with your kids. Moses is being led and challenged to intercede as a leader. He'll be leading for the next 40 years, right? And first of all, before I even jump into what a rhetorical demand is, what is beautiful about this is that Moses is going to intercede for a very difficult people, which is important for all of us who want to be in leadership. If you want to be in leadership in life and you want the gospel to shape you and what that leadership can look like, it's going to mean interceding for what he calls stiff-necked people, which is a different sermon on what that means. A stiff-necked people. Now, would we do this in our workplace, in our home, because Moses is doing it? I mean, I suppose you could, but Moses is doing it because later on, Jesus will also intercede for a more stiff-necked people that encompass more than just one singular nation. Jesus is the better Moses, will be the better interceder. We see the same phenomenon where God is doing something like this, where he is throwing out a statement, which is also a provocation at the same time. We see it in Isaiah, Amos, Genesis, even Jonah, right? You've seen this in Jonah. If you know the story of Jonah, maybe on a flannel gram when you were a kid or something, what does Jonah do when he's waltzing through Nineveh? He's not saying, hey guys, listen, if you just clean it up a little bit and turn to God, you'll be fine in 40 days. If not, it's going to get kind of hairy around here. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't even want to be there. So you know that's not what he's doing. He's not petitioning people. He's walking through the streets. He's like, yo, 40 days and this whole place is going to get blasted. Deuces, walks down the next street and does it over and over and over again. He doesn't care about them. He's letting them know God is going to level this place. And yet what happens? They all repent. He didn't ask for them to repent. He's not begging them to repent. They're doing it anyway. We use rhetorical demands all the time. I've walked into my kid's room so many times and said, well, I guess you've given me no chance. I'm going to take away media forever. That's right, forever. No Disney Plus, no nothing forever. And then turn around and walk out. Listen, that was a statement, but it was more than a statement. Because this is what you're going to hear. Wait, 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 wait. Let's come to an understanding here, right? What do I need to do to fix this? What does repentance look like, Father, in this moment? They're not really saying that, but they're saying things like that, right? I'm not telling them what it's, I'm making a statement which is also a provocation. It's both. We see this all the time in the Bible. All the time in the Bible. We see it quite a bit. He is saying, here are my intentions. 
feel free to step in and lead. So God is not changing imperfect plans. Moses is fulfilling and carrying out his perfect plans. That's what we see here. It can be confusing, but that's what's happening right now. Okay? Let's look at 32 verse 15. We're going to go a little bit further. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot to image his God, by the way, to image the appropriate reaction. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder, a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now listen, this is interesting. Burning, grinding it to a powder, and consuming it. He's doing that so that it's mixed with their waste, and they'll never go back to it again. He's forcing them to leave it behind. It seems over the top, doesn't it? And it is. I, I, I was reading this the other day, I thought, what did that do to their guts, man? They needed some like probiotics or something after that. What does it mean to eat gold? Google that, Siri. What does it mean to eat gold? But that's what, it's over the top. Nobody does this. But it should lead you and me to see the depths of what it takes to go and put an idol down, to put sin down in our life. Humanity's typical treatment of sin is to collaborate or cut a deal with it just in case you need it in the future, just in case God leaves you hanging, right? Just in case he is unsatisfying to you. And so Moses is going to employ deep symbolism here by saying we are leaving idols behind. We are leaving Egypt behind. We're carrying our hearts forward with our king. We do not cut deals with sin. Not gonna happen. This is important because the invasive nature of sin in our lives is that if we do not grind it up, if we do not leave it behind us, it will just reappear. It may be as something else. It might re-manifest as something very different, but it will reappear. We say this a lot here, that there is always a sin behind the sin. There's a sin behind the sin. One of their sins was making a cow. They weren't supposed to do that, right? Check. You should make fashion another god. They, they knew better. That, that's something that they would need to repent for. But there's also a lie underneath it that needs repentance too. And that is that God is a liar. He's nowhere to be found. He's not coming back. Where Moses is, this guy, who knows? But nobody's here, so God's obviously not God. Let's make a new God. That's the sin. If all they had to repent for was just making a dumb statue, they'd have done something else with the same underlying rip current of sin. They'd have done something else. And it's like that with us too. I mean, if you have outbursts of anger, some of you in here have an anger problem, and you punch a hole in something, and it breaks it and hurts your hands, or you rip something or break something or kick something, that requires repentance. It's an outburst of anger. You know it. And typically when you're telling your spouse that you're sorry or the people around you that you're sorry for that, you usually frame a statement that says, that's a sin and I'm sorry for doing that. I'm sorry for punching that. I shouldn't do that. I won't do that again. And that's right. I'm not going to throw any shade on that. That's proper repentance. But there's a sin under the sin. There, there's also something that says God's a liar. 
And he's not good. And he's not giving me what I want. And I want to be a sovereign. And I want control over this moment. And I want what I want. Because I'm a better God than God. And because I didn't get it, I'm going to start breaking stuff around here. That lie requires repentance just as much as breaking things. Pornography requires repentance. Rightfully so. It's an insidious sin. And also the sin under it. I want to escape. I want comfort. God's a liar. He's not going to give it to me. I can't find satisfaction in God. God can't complete me. I've got to have this instead. There's something underneath that sin. Listen, and by the way, as a side topic, and probably not the arena for this, but if pornography is a deep, deep, deep issue for you, and you don't know why you're going to that, you'll always be going back to the same broken sin. This thing that brings you shame, this thing that you've been wanting to drop, if you don't even know why you're going to it, change Change how you're meditating on that sin. Change how you're going to the Lord on that sin. Ask him, why is it for me that I keep going back? Because if you cannot locate the sin underneath that sin, you're, it's just going to manifest in another way or you'll be unable to beat it. Hoarding the same way. I'll tell you what, man. There's a pandemic-infused hoarding right now with time and with treasure, specifically those two things. It's really debilitating. There are nonprofits that are shutting down left and right because people are so scared of what could be the future that they've got a Loctite grip on their money and their time. We're seeing it more now, but it was always there. It's just amplified more now that we can see it. That requires repentance. Not your time, not your money. You're a steward of both. That would be theft. It requires repentance, but then there's a sin underneath it. I need to protect myself because God is a liar. He's not where I go for safety. What would that even look like? God's not going to save me. I need this silo full of money to save me. I need this bank account to save me. I need an open calendar to save me. The only way to grind up sin and leave it as waste behind us is to recognize that there is more to repent of than just what we see on the surface, just the fruit falling from the tree. There's a branch holding that fruit. We've got to repent for the sin under the sin. So don't just ask what is the sin that you are seeing in your life. But what is it about God that you see to be a lie that's provoking that sin? That is the question. That's the question. All right, let's jump in. Let's finish this passage. I go all day on that. So verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that, they, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold rings take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Okay? Read just a little bit more. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to the gate throughout the camp and kill each his brother and his companion and his neighbor. He's talking about the people that are not going to be with God moving forward. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and on that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. 
And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. That's interesting verb right there, verbology right there. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent the plague on the people because they made a calf the one that Aaron made. There is, there is a lot going on here. Probably required a few more sermons just in some of the, the texture of that. I want to focus on one thing. Just zoom in on Aaron's response. He's doing two things. We recognize him because, again, we do the same thing. He minimizes the sin, and then he shifts blame, right? Moses, Moses, why so angry? You know these people. You know these, you know these people, right? And then he shifts blame. They just gave me gold. I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. Got me. I have no idea how this happened. What Aaron is doing sounds super goofy, right? But he's doing something that we've done since the garden. We minimize sin and we shift blame, right? Surely God doesn't say I can't eat of this tree. Surely it's not that big of a deal. Then he pivots and says what? It's the woman that you gave me. It's the same one-two punch we've been using for a long time. It's not a big deal. It's not my fault. Not a big deal. Not my fault. What Aaron is doing sounds super goofy. I've heard dumber. I've heard dumber. I've heard more ridiculous statements than this. We're married in our hearts. Well, we're married in our hearts. I mean, I know, I know. We, and you can see that they, they, in their face, the way they're explaining it. We didn't go through, we didn't like talk about marriage. We didn't commit to each other. We're just chilling together, but we're, listen, it's cool. We're married in our hearts. They're minimizing sin. They're shifting blame. We couldn't help it. We just fell in love with each other, right? That's just as stupid as a calf came out of the fire. God hasn't given me enough money for generosity. God has not given me enough time for generosity, right? That's another one. Billions of people, billions of people, God has said, I will give you what you need to be obedient, but you Man, that must be a lot. That's got to be a load on you. That must be rough to be the only person alive, right, that has been unable to steward their money correctly. Minimizing the sin, shifting the blame. Minimizing the sin, shifting the blame. We do the same. God understands me. That's another one. I know it's a sin. I know you just read it like in 16 different passages how I probably shouldn't do that and that there's a better life for me and I can enjoy Jesus more. But listen, God understands me. God understands me. Tell me that's not ridiculous. We're just as ridiculous. We're just as ridiculous. We can scoff at Aaron all we want, but let's be brutally honest. This is the guy. Aaron is the guy that watched the Red Seas part, saw all those crazy miraculous signs, sticks turning into snakes, turning back into sticks. He saw that, saw bread fall from the sky, water come from the rock. He saw fire lead them. He saw this. David saw it. Judas saw it. Peter saw it. If all these men can minimize sin and shift that blame, let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. We're going to struggle with the same thing. 
whatever it is that's hiding under the hood for you, that you were saying it's not a big deal, only to find out that when that has run its course, you say it's not my fault. Whatever that is for you, it is destroying you. And it's gaining the red hot gaze of a good God. And he's taking it seriously. If there's no weight to the sin that we coddle in our lives, if there's no weight to it, then how can the gospel be good news? How can it be good news? If the golden calves of our lives are not treated as such, how can the gospel carry something beautiful for us? I mean, let's just look at how it handles it. How does God's good news handle our idols? With mercy for sinners. He hates sin and he has mercy for sinners. This is what builds beauty inside of our gospel. Jesus does much more than Moses here, by the way. You caught this. Moses went back up on the hill using the word atone. He goes back up on the hill to atone for the sins of the people. He was willing to be vaporized for the good of a stiff-necked, rebellious people. That's true. We just read it. Even if you've got to blot me out, God, even if it means blotting me out, that's benevolent. I mean, that's a pretty big price tag, right? Make me disappear for the sake of these people who don't even really like me all that much? That's pretty generous. Jesus ascended a different hill to be blotted off the face of this planet for the good of a stiff-necked, rebellious people because he is the better Moses. God is just in his wrath here, and God is merciful in his forgiveness deeply. His wrath reveals a righteous, righteous, righteous hatred for sin, and his mercy reveals a love. Well, let's just be honest. That mercy, it's a little bit disarming. I mean, if you truly understand what mercy is, then you would understand the red-hot gaze of, of, of his face towards your sin. That would feel appropriate. But his mercy, that's disarming. He's not giving me what I deserve. You see, grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, and mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. That's what's disarming about this passage. He took our golden cows. He took our blame-shifting, puts them on his own shoulders, takes our unrighteous life, past, present, and future, puts it on his shoulders while he's bleeding out on a cross and gives us his righteousness that we wear as a cloak as we're adopted and grafted into the family of God. That's amazing to me. And it is this kindness, his kindness, that leads us to grow as disciples. Not the shame of the sin. I mean, listen, if I started talking about hoarding and pornography and things like that and your heart sank and you for a minute thought, I need to change that because of the shame you felt, You'll change your behavior for a little bit. It won't change your heart. Shame cannot change a human heart. It can change behavior for a little bit, but not a human heart. It's kindness that leads us to grow. This is what Paul tells the Roman church. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness in forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's when you meditate and reflect on God's kindness, his mercy, that's when sin will lose its taste. You'll be repulsed by it. Because sin then becomes the thing that doesn't satisfy you but gets in the way of being satisfied. Sin is the thing that's holding satisfaction back. Your heart becomes, how do I get more of God? And you see sin a lot differently. It is the thing that is stumbling. It's the thing that's tripping you and causing you to fall. Some of us have tried for such a long time to put down a pervasive sin and we just can't. We can't. No shame in the world has been able to do that. But here's the truth. We don't even really want to. Because we feel like God's really going to leave us hanging. He's not going to meet the demands of our hearts. So we're not going to believe him or risk ourselves upon him. 
But when our hearts are convinced of his mercy and his kindness, truly convinced, truly resolved, it'll be then that we will be happy and joyful to put idols down, to put them down. They just get in the way. So where is it that your heart leans back towards Egypt, to use the words of Stephen? Where are you one foot towards the Lord and one foot happily in this world? And even now, what is it that's sitting on your shoulder trying to convince you that I'm not talking about it? Whatever it is. I want you to imagine Jesus on a hill, a better hill than Moses, who would join his heart, shed mercy upon a stiff-necked, rebellious people. You didn't ask him to do that. You didn't deserve it either, right? Neither did I. But he atoned, properly atoned, being blot out for you and for me. We are people that negotiated with sin. We didn't just grind up our golden calf. We threw a cover on top of it and pushed it into the other room just in case we needed it later on. But imagine Jesus' disposition towards us today. God's anger is hot towards what we've been minimizing, but his mercy is also true. He's good. Listen, today, do not let another day pass where you keep a guest room in your life for sin. Don't let this day sneak by. Don't let another week move by where you tolerate and minimize the very thing that put Jesus on the cross. Don't let today be that day.